This is Guns and Butter. So basically, uh, the United States is in danger of being turned into a uh, feudal type of toll booth economy. In other words, rent extraction. The idea today is not at all what Marx and socialists talked about a hundred years ago, making profits. It's not about what uh, the classical economists called profit. It's about rent extraction, uh, pure monopoly power to charge for the excess to use a road, to park, to use a hospital, to have education, to have medical care, for uh, essentially monopoly rents on uh, uh, natural monopolies such as transportation and most basic infrastructure. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Michael Hudson. Today's show, The View from Europe. Dr. Hudson is a financial economist and historian. He is president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trend, a Wall Street financial analyst and distinguished research professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. His 1972 book, Super Imperialism, The Economic Strategy of American Empire, is a critique of how the United States exploited foreign economies through the IMF and World Bank. He is also author of Trade, Development, and Foreign Debt, The Myth of Aid, and Global Fracture, The New International Economic Order. Today we discuss Dr. Hudson's most recent article, The Spectre Haunting Europe, Debt Defaults, Austerity, and Death of the Social Europe Model. Michael Hudson, welcome. Thank you very much. In your recent article, The Spectre Haunting Europe, you say that bankers and the financial press are asking European governments to emulate the financial and fiscal austerity policies of Latvia. Is fiscal austerity what you mean by the specter haunting Europe? Yes, it means that uh, countries have to increase their taxes in order to squeeze out uh, enough revenue to slash uh, imports and generate enough foreign exchange to pay the foreign debts that their banks made uh, so irresponsibly. What fiscal policies has the government of Latvia implemented? Well, for starters, they've lowered uh, wage rates in the public sector by 30 percent in order to drive them down across the board. Uh, And the head of their central bank told me he'd like to bring them down to uh, about 45 percent. Latvia has a 59 percent flat tax on labor, the highest in the entire world. It has a 1 percent tax on property. So uh, essentially, labor is uh, being uh, forced down and made uneconomic to employ so that the government uh, won't have to uh, tax real estate and the result was a real estate bubble. The World Bank applauded Latvia and the Baltic Tigers for being the most business-friendly economies in the world, meaning the most anti-labor, most anti-social, the most that are running their economies for foreign bankers. The situation is so bad in Latvia, or I should say so successful from the World Bank's point of view, that one-third of Latvian labor of working age has been driven abroad to work. And the situation there is so bad that real estate prices have fallen by 70%. Uh, Now, when I met a year ago with the uh, uh, bank examiners, they explained to me that uh, 
uh, they've asked the, the banks to secure their position, and these are mainly uh, domestic branches of Swedish banks, uh, that they've asked these banks to protect themselves, not simply by getting a mortgage against the property, but by getting the personal liability of the mortgage borrower, uh, the children, the parents, uh, and the relatives, so that they're all personally liable. Well, now that uh, real estate prices have fallen by 70%, you can imagine what the result is. Uh, the result is that uh, people are, are defaulting and whole families are becoming liable. So mothers in Latvia, as in Iceland, are telling their children, You're, you've got to emigrate. We've all got to emigrate because we're all liable for these back, back mortgage loans. And so essentially, Latvia is being returned to a state of feudalism. Uh, which, of course, is the final stage of capitalism, World Bank style. You write about the October 2010 election in Latvia. What's your evaluation of that election? What happened? Well, uh, elections in uh, Latvia and the Baltics generally are not fought over economic issues, surprising as that may seem. They're mainly fought over uh, ethnic issues between the domestic population uh, and the Russian-speaking population. The problem is that in the 1950s, Stalin uh, tried to uh, move uh, Russian speakers into the Baltics in order to Russify them. And um, they were given uh, priority over the domestic economy, and it was pretty much of a disaster and caused enormous resentment. Uh, essentially, uh, Latvia, which has a million and a half uh, uh, population, uh, about 50,000 members of the middle class were either uh, exiled or arrested or sent to Siberia. So the middle class was wiped out. Russians uh, were brought in. And uh, the uh, Latvians, like the uh, other Baltic, the Lithuanians and Estonians, developed a very active global uh, population abroad. And after the Soviet Union fell uh, apart in uh, 1991, a lot of them began to come back, try to rebuild uh, the country. And needless to say, there's an enormous resentment against the Russian speakers. So the economic reformers uh, who were trying to uh, alleviate the debt problem uh, happened to be mainly the Russian speakers. They were expected before the election to get about 50% of the vote. They only got 30% of the vote because when the election came, they uh, fought it largely over, well, do we want to give... Uh, uh, voting rights, equal citizenship rights to Russian speakers. They made the whole focus of the election uh, Russian rights instead of uh, economic rights for Latvians and, and Russian speakers and the economy as a whole. So um, Latvians were reminded about how angry they were uh, at Stalin and uh, that basically uh, there was not enough votes uh, for the parliament to overturn the neoliberal World Bank-oriented policies that uh, say that the cure is uh, austerity. And by austerity, it's what they call domestic devaluation. Uh, although Latvia has its own currency, it wants to join the euro and has linked its currency uh, to a stable uh, euro value. And since it can't devalue, it has to drastically lower wages and lower living standards. So the neoliberals won on the promise of cutting living standards in half, uh, cutting back health care, closing down most of the hospitals and most of the schools, uh, and essentially impoverishing the country. 
and the Latvians uh, were applauded in the Wall Street Journal and the others for voting for impoverishment and fighting it, but they really didn't vote for impoverishment. They really voted against uh, the uh, Russian revanchism. Uh, Jeff Summers and I wrote articles on this for The Guardian, for Counterpunch, uh, for other uh, newspapers. Uh, so uh, it's been discussed quite a bit on internet. It's, a lot is on my website. So the majority voted for these right-wing policies, but they were really voting along ethnic lines. They weren't thinking about economic policies. That's it. The uh, ethnic issues in the Baltics trump, trump everything. Now you write that Latvia's economic freefall has been the steepest of any nation since the 2008 financial crisis. Is that right? A steeper drop than any other country? Uh, well, right now, uh, it may be that Ireland is going to be in an even worse condition, and uh, Iceland may be in a worse condition. On uh, April 8th, uh, Iceland is going to vote as to whether to take responsibility for bailing out uh, the Landsbanki big bank frauds. Uh, and if they bail them out, uh, half the population of Iceland will have to emigrate. Uh, they'll lose their homes, and it will be uh, genocide. Uh, right now, it's 50-50. About half the Icelanders want to commit suicide. Uh, economic suicide and destroy the economy. Uh, that's the power of neoliberalism. Uh, they make people think that it's really a good sign, uh, make people want to destroy the economy, tear it apart, and lower their living standards. And, and all this is in a democracy. Uh, it's hard to believe that in a democracy, people are really going to want to vote for lower living standards. But that's uh, basically what's happening. And I don't think anybody a century ago uh, ever could have imagined such a thing. Well, now, you've mentioned Iceland's public vote on April 8th as to whether or not to repay Britain and the Netherlands for the lands banky bailouts. Five billion is owed. I thought Iceland already had this vote and that it passed overwhelmingly, that they weren't going to pay, but that that was overturned by Iceland's parliament. Now they're going to have another vote? That's right. Uh, the ultra-right parties of Europe are the Labour parties and the Social Democratic parties, joined by the Greens. It's ironic that the Labour parties should be on the ultra-right of the political spectrum, but that's what's happened. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, many people blame this on the financing or takeover, uh, but the Parliament insisted that... Uh, uh, there'll be yet another vote, and they've tried to loosen the terms a bit, and they've refused uh, to have another election. Uh, so this is uh, essentially tearing Iceland apart. Uh, there was a by-election, and a party call of uh, television comedians, sort of like Al Franken, you might say, ran a protest vote called the Best Party of people who are not political at all. They were overwhelmingly voted in. So the people of Iceland overwhelmingly want to throw out uh, the existing anti-labor, anti-social democratic, anti-green party that call themselves labor, social democratic, and greens. Uh, Parliament insisted in uh, trying to say, we don't care what the people vote. We want to pay the uh, British banks because otherwise all of our fraud and our criminal activities that involve all of our relatives and all of our giveaways will be exposed and we're all going to go to jail. Uh, they don't want to go to jail, so they're doing everything they can to cover it up, cover up uh, their crimes. Uh, and essentially, uh, this is 
what the situation's about. The, uh, fortunately, the president, uh, under Iceland's constitution, the president of Iceland, not the prime minister, but someone who basically is in a ceremonial position, very much like a, uh, a corporate secretary, has to sign on uh, the parliamentary uh, decision to pay the uh, debts. And the president said, I'm not going to sign this. If you're going to uh, cut the population in half and destroy the economy forever and empty it out in uh, the greatest natural disaster in the last uh, thousand years, people should have a vote on that. Uh, of course, the prime minister said, that's awful. You don't let people vote on something that's going to kill them. Uh, but the president said, yes, you've got to let them vote. So uh, uh, the president refused to sign, and that forced it to a vote against. The people can't decide whether to commit suicide or not. It's, it's, you know, it's wintertime. It's a Nordic country. They get depressed. What can you say? So they're going to have the vote yet again. And assuming that the people vote that they don't want to pay this money back, then uh, then what? Then we'll see what happens then? Uh, presumably, the parliament is just going to try to stall as long as it can and then say, uh, stall for an election until they can say, the statute of limitations has run out, you can't throw us in jail, we gave away the country fair and square, and we're keeping everything that we've stolen. Why does economic austerity appeal to bankers? Uh, because they believe that if you uh, can lower wages far enough, that will somehow free more income to pay them in the form of debt service. Now, ironically, uh, this uh, just the opposite happens. Obviously, if you impoverish people, uh, they don't have enough money to repay, and they're going to be more defaults. And so the bankers then say, we can live with defaults. For instance, uh, a few minutes ago, just before you called, uh, Moody's just downgraded uh, Greece's uh, bonds by a few notches. And so the Wall Street Journal just came out with something saying, this is great, Greece is bankrupt, let's privatize things. I can read you from what they just said. Uh, the Wall Street Journal blog says, uh, we don't hear nearly enough about privatization as a solution to Europe's sovereign crisis. Outside of Spain, where there are plans to privatize the airport and lottery, there's very little talk around the markets or around bankers of major state asset sales. Yet by some estimates, the Greek state owns 270 billion euros of real estate, much of it yielding well below the 6% that the government must pay out on its emergency loans, some of which could be sold to pay down the debt. So far, the Greek government has seemed reluctant to consider selling this land and doesn't even have a full inventory of what it owns. But with a total public debt of 340 billion euros, even realizing a fraction of this estimated value could transform the government's debt metrics. So bankers uh, want austerity because it will bankrupt the economy, because it will force them to sell off the public domain and carve it up, uh, and it's an asset grab, just like it is in Wisconsin, Illinois, New York. California and other states here in America that are broke. Uh, there's a, a grab to say, let's uh, sell off everything the public sector owns, let's give it to the bankers and the creditors, and uh, there won't be any government anymore. We will be the government. And that's basically what free market economics is. It's centralized planning in the hands of Wall Street and the banks. The idea of free market economics is to take planning out of the hands of government out of the hands of elected officials and to put them in the hands of the bankers, who then will take a banker's eye view of the world and just lower living standards uh, until uh, you have what happened in Russia 
where Vladimir Putin said that uh, neoliberal privatization there had killed more Russians than World War II, had uh, shortened the lifespan, uh, reduced public health, uh, led to uh, lower birth rates, lower marriage rates, and emigration. And the effect of neoliberal economics is just as devastating as uh, war. So essentially, finance is the new form of warfare in a non-military sense. It's cheaper, uh, it makes money, and uh, people seem to not even realize that they're under attack. I'm speaking with financial economist and historian Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, The View from Europe. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You contrast Latvia with its neighbor Belarus in your article, The Spectre Haunting Europe. Belarus has a centrally planned economy. What then is the difference between Belarus and Latvia? The point of this is that Belarus is doing better economically, correct? Yes, it's, uh, people make fun of it because it's not, not a very politically free economy. It's uh, said that there's a lot of uh, corruption there, but at least its metrics uh, economically do a lot better than those of uh, Latvia, ironic as it may seem. I think uh, Jeff and I uh, uh, put that in mainly because uh, uh, we wanted to say, look, all of you make fun of centrally planned economies, but uh, bad as they are, uh, unfree as they are, politically corrupt as uh, uh, Stalinism is, at least it's not as bad as neoliberalism. That was what we were saying, not that we're advocating that everybody be like Belarus. Right. You say that social democracy and peace are at stake. How so? Well, social democracy is supposed to be based on democracy and people are supposed to vote. But uh, the financial sector wants to make central banks, as they are in the United States, outside of the uh, voting process. It is said that the hallmark of democracy is an independent central bank, meaning we will screw you no matter what you vote. No matter who you vote in, you can't stop us. You can't do anything because we are appointed by politicians uh, for long periods of time. There's nothing you can do to bring us under control, and we can kill you if we want, and that's just exactly what we intend to do, try to stop us. That's why democracy and uh, finance are antithetical. What is the connection between economic depression and war? Well, (laughs) war has uh, brought some countries out of economic depression. uh, But in the past, uh, the way to destroy a country was by military invasion. And today you can destroy it by pushing it into a financial depression, by getting it into debt. Uh, and then forcing its government to run a budget uh, surplus, to raise taxes, to pay off the debt, uh, to privatize its schools, to privatize its roads, to privatize its hospitals or close them down, to stop Social Security, to stop uh, pensions, to stop paying on social things, to stop... The idea is to use at least 75% of the tax revenues to pay the bankers on debts uh, and uh, back interest that have uh, mounted up, which was the case of many countries in times past. How important are capital controls and government investment in the economy? Uh, Government investment, basically governments will borrow from uh, Western banks 
to put in place an infrastructure, uh, thereby getting the money to employ Western firms that build it up. Uh, and then, having put it in place, it'll turn around and privatize them for maybe one penny on the dollar and give them all away. So the West, having already got paid once, can now get paid all over again by having a huge stock market boom, which is what happened in, in Russia when Russia became uh, sort of the darling of the stock market in the mid-1990s. So then, how do the economic policies instituted after World War II in Western Europe contrast with the policies implemented in the 1990s after the Cold War in Eastern Europe? How do these economic policies differ? After World War II, everybody expected governments to uh, take the lead in uh, building infrastructure, in supporting economic expansion. Governments followed a Keynesian policy, uh, pro-labor policy. They put in place pensions and health care systems. Uh, governments were part of a uh, Keynesian type of social democratic expansion. Uh, exactly the opposite occurred uh, when the Soviet Union was uh, carved up. Uh, there, wages went unpaid in Russia for six to nine months. Instead of government taking the lead, the government essentially gave away uh, all of the mineral rights, the uh, companies, uh, the land, the real estate, uh, to political insiders to sell off very cheaply to American and European investors. And uh, you had uh, privatization and uh, Western bankers running things to shrink uh, the economy. Uh, Throughout the Soviet Union, uh, lifespans shortened, marriages declined, Birth rates fell, uh, emigration accelerated. In Russia, $25 billion worth of capital flight occurred per year. At the time when the Russian stock market was booming for American and European investors. So you had essentially uh, Russia following uh, the junk economics that the Harvard boys uh, from Harvard University uh, imposed upon it, uh, very much like uh, the Chicago boys did in Pinochet's Chile, after uh, 1973, uh, when there was a military coup there. And in fact, the Russian Free Market Party even called itself the Pinochetistas, looking at Chile as uh, the free market model uh, that they emulated. So uh, you could say Russia was the final uh, stage of the uh, uh, Chilean neoliberalism. You write that in contrast to the Marshall Plan's government-to-government grants, the European Central Bank's focus has been on commercial lending to the Eastern European countries. What are the differences? In other words, then, would you say that Eastern Europe, instead of being helped, was simply being ripped off? When governments spend money, it's basically on infrastructure or it's on social policies, uh, and it usually employs labor. When commercial banks lend money, it's uh, not to expand production or for a social purpose. It's usually lent against collateral in the form of real estate or other property. So the commercial banks essentially fueled a huge uh, real estate boom uh, in the Baltics uh, and throughout the Soviet Union. Uh, You had the most uh, rapid real estate bubble there uh, of anywhere except for Iceland, uh, which called itself a kind of quasi-post-Soviet economy. So uh, the differences between a social democratic Keynesian expansion and a financialized bubble economy. 
You write that Eastern and Southern European countries were brought into the Eurozone with its strong currency and strict government lending programs with no way to develop their manufacturing. What do you mean by strong currency? And what do you mean by strict government lending programs? Well, a high currency exchange rate meant that uh, labor is pretty high priced. Uh, when you change a currency, uh, there's a world price for raw materials, a world price for oil, a world price for technology. Uh, but the only thing that's changed when you uh, devalue a currency is the price of labor. Uh, but these countries entered at a rather high exchange rate that was set basically by keeping their interest rates high enough to be able to borrow to support the exchange rate. So uh, their industry wasn't competitive, and the uh, European Central Bank prohibits uh, central banks from lending to government. So the governments, if they ran a budget deficit, they couldn't do what the United States does and simply print the money electronically on their computer keyboards uh, freely. They had to go out and borrow at interest from uh, foreign banks. Uh, that was written into the European Constitution. And so these uh, the southern European countries were very high-cost economies and were unable to compete with uh, the core countries of France and Germany. Right. Well, what is the similarity between the IMF's austerity doctrine toward the Third World and the EU's expectations of Eastern and Southern Europe? They're identical. Uh, the idea that uh, governments, once they're in debt and once they owe foreign money, uh, have to essentially squeeze money out of their labor force in order to pay debts. Now, uh, third world countries under the IMF were supposed to devalue. And by devaluing their currency, they devalued the price of their labor and the rate at which their labor exchanged for uh, imports and for raw materials. But um, under the European Union, they can't devalue the currency, so they have to uh, simply lower wage rates there by drastic austerity programs, and they do that by creating massive unemployment. So the uh, European policy towards uh, Southern Europe and the Baltics is uh, enough unemployment to keep wages low. Well, of course, what happens is when uh, you pay people less than it costs them to live, they emigrate. They don't simply starve quietly in the country. There's a huge emigration, and that's why uh, you have uh, so many Baltic uh, workers working abroad, uh, so many uh, Southerners, uh, uh, Greeks and Spaniards working abroad. Uh, there's a demographic crisis that's going to be occurring as a result of the financial austerity programs that didn't necessarily occur in the third world countries under the IMF in the 60s and 70s and 80s. What restrictions does the euro place on its member countries? Uh, essentially that they are not permitted to lend to the central banks and that central banks uh, have to let the economy be run by commercial banks in America, England and Germany. Uh, that the commercial banks become the central economic planners, not the government, and essentially that uh, domestic democracy is overruled by uh, uh, centralizing planning in the, the financial institutions. You write that aside from the misery and human tragedies that will multiply in its wake, fiscal and wage austerity is economically self-destructive. It will create a downward demand spiral pulling the EU as a whole into recession. Isn't this also the case for the United States? 
Well, you're seeing that in uh, Wisconsin now and in uh, California, and you're seeing that in the States. Uh, people believe that the next big budget uh, financial crisis here will be defaults uh, from the states and cities uh, that can't pay their bills. Illinois, Chicago, Wisconsin, and they're all told to do what uh, Greece and uh, other countries are being told to do. Sell off all of your public domain. Uh, Chicago's been told to sell it off its streets and uh, replace them with parking meters uh, so that uh, they can raise the money in advance. They've been told to sell off their roads and turn them into toll roads. So basically, uh, the United States is in danger of being turned into a uh, feudal type of toll booth economy. In other words, rent extraction. The idea today is, is not at all what Marx and socialists talked about a hundred years ago, making profits. It's not about what uh, the classical economists called profit. It's about rent extraction, a pure monopoly power to charge for the excess to use a road, to park, to use a hospital, to have education, to have medical care, for uh, essentially monopoly rents on uh, uh, natural monopolies such as transportation and most basic infrastructure. I'm speaking with financial economist and historian Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, The View from Europe. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. European governments are pursuing policies of privatization, which we have been discussing. Cuts in social spending, such as health and essential services. In Greece, in the last week of February, the eighth general strike since the financial crisis took place in response to passage of a privatization and deregulation law by the Greek parliament. The bill abolished regulations on 150 professions, including workers in public transport, civil engineers, doctors, lawyers, pharmacists. The deregulation was demanded by the IMF and EU as a condition for access to further loans. Greek officials have promised to raise 50 billion euros from privatization sales of state agencies. In the UK, the new government has just published its Big Society plan to release the grip of state control. The goal is really to privatize state services such as health and education and other essential social expenditures. Students in the UK have staged repeated mass demonstrations against this policy, but it's going forward anyway. Is this the program all over Europe? Yes, uh, what uh, they call the uh, grip of state control uh, is to be replaced by the grip of financial control. In other words, the grip of control by elected uh, democracy is to be replaced by the grip of uh, bankers and creditors uh, who uh, are immune from uh, people's voting and uh, can do whatever they want. So uh, what do you think is a tighter grip, that of elected uh, government representatives or that of unelected bankers in Wall Street saying, we want to take uh, whatever you have, pay us or else, your money or your life? That's the choice that they're given, and that's what they're told to do by the World Bank and the IMF as arms of the U.S. Treasury. So then is this the program all over Europe? Yes, that's the program. Uh, that's why uh, some uh, money managers in Europe and America are uh, engaging in a capital flight out of their own economies. They're putting their money into uh, the BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, Singapore, uh, countries that don't uh, stand for this nonsense. So there's a capital flight uh, out of Europe, 
out of North America uh, at the same time uh, this is happening. So the financial managers themselves know that this won't work, uh, but they say, well, we're going to grab as much as we can for as long as we can. Why not? Well, it, it's a self-destructive policy then, right? Uh, it's destructive of uh, the countries that follow it, uh, but the bankers think, well, we're going to end up, uh, as the new power elites, we're going to end up owning the world. It's demographically destructive because uh, poverty means that people get sicker, it means they die quicker, it means they can't afford to get an education, it means productivity goes down, it means just a, a huge waste. In Wisconsin, which you mentioned a little bit earlier, Governor Walker is attempting to destroy collective bargaining, a basic right of working people. What are the implications of this effort on the part of the state government? Is this effort going to be tried across the country, depending upon how it turns out in Wisconsin? Well, it's already been tried in a number of states, like uh, Ohio. Uh, but the most important thing in Wisconsin isn't simply the collective bargaining. Of course they want to get rid of collective bargaining so that they can uh, dictate lower salaries. But the main thing in Wisconsin, uh, the bill that uh, tries to abolish collective bargaining is 133 pages long, and the key parts of it are the privatization parts. Uh, the governor gets to sell off uh, electric utilities, power utilities, whatever assets he wants, to whatever, uh, whatever price he wants to his campaign contributors or whoever he wants to. So he could sell uh, his main backers, the Koch brothers, uh, say an electric company for one dollar and saying it's in the public interest, private enterprise is better. After all, that's what they did in Russia. So you could have all of Wisconsin's, uh, all of the public utilities and streets and roads and uh, schools uh, that have been built up over the last century uh, and the land, the forests, the beachfront, all just sold off for a dollar or two to whoever he wants. Essentially, it would be the biggest asset grab since the railway uh, land grants of the mid-19th century. In that regard, you've just recently written a short piece about some of the privatization grabs in different countries. You told a startling story about New Zealand and other places. Could you mention a few of those? Well, there are a number of books about New Zealand. Again, uh, the Labour Party in New Zealand, as in Australia, were the ultra-right-wing Thatcherite party. And uh, they've tried to sell off everything they could throughout uh, uh, the country, essentially at giveaways. For instance, uh, they privatized the electric uh, utility, saying that it would be uh, more efficient to have it in private hands. But the first thing the new buyers did was they said, well, we want to increase profits by cutting costs. So we don't need to hire repairmen or uh, fix-it men in case anything goes wrong. Uh, and so they fired them all, and most of these people couldn't find work in New Zealand, so they left the country. And then things began to break down and go wrong, and there were no repairs. And Auckland, uh, the capital, was without electricity for months on end, uh, just causing a devastation of New Zealand business. So the New Zealand economy is basically killed. Uh, it's dead, it's been privatized and carved up, and been left an empty shell. Uh, and the Labour Party is convinced still that this is more efficient. The New Zealanders are so stupid that they really believe that dying quickly uh, in the dark is the way to help uh, the world develop, because they're told this helps uh, create wealth, uh, Alan Greenspan style, for the financial sector, and it, the country has committed mass suicide. When did they privatize the electricity in Auckland? 
uh, a few years ago, but they've been doing it since about 1990. Uh, I think Douglas came in as the uh, uh, privatizer there and just began selling off uh, everything he could, much more even than Margaret Thatcher did in London. And uh, Pluto Press uh, published uh, a good book on that a few years ago. And uh, people don't usually talk much about uh, New Zealand, but it's in just as bad a condition as uh, uh, the Baltic countries. What do you mean in terms of what has been privatized in New Zealand? causing just mass economic uh, breakdown. They've sold off the water systems, the sewage system. Uh, basically, nothing works. Uh, it's like London used to be. Well, so then, how long has this privatization scheme been going on in New Zealand? Since about 1990. Uh, there are a number of books written about it in the 1990s. I know Pluto Press published one. Uh, and it's just been an overall... Uh, overall disaster. Uh, and it gets worse and worse, and the, uh, the New Zealanders keep saying uh, they want to privatize yet more. They're told that, yes, things are worse because you didn't privatize enough, you're not poor enough, so the New Zealanders are saying, okay, we'll sell off even more of the state, we'll get even poorer, uh, we'll uh, lower our living standards all the more, will that help? And of course it doesn't help, uh, it just declines and declines and declines. How bad of shape is New Zealand in? What would you compare it to in another country? Uh, to the Baltics, uh, to Latvia and other countries, where uh, a lot of uh, skilled labor is emigrating. Really? You're kidding. It actually compares with the Baltics? Well, I've never been to New Zealand, uh, but I've been to Australia, and uh, I meet New Zealanders here, I meet New Zealanders in Australia. Uh, they've all told me they... Uh, they have to leave because there's, there's no work in Australia. There's no education. There's no hope for their children. Uh, there's only worse and worse poverty. And essentially, the government has told them, drop dead or move, because uh, we're selling off the country and there's no room for New Zealanders to live in the country. Uh, essentially, it's like in Scotland when they uh, uh, evicted the tenants to put uh, sheep on the land, uh, they want to use New Zealand for the sheep to grow wool, and they're telling the people, get off our land. It's ours now, and we want to grow sheep on it. Uh, we have no uh, need at all for people. Is the government in New Zealand presently a right-wing government? Yes, it's a labor, labor social democratic party. I see. Because not that long ago, several years ago, I thought they had a more liberal government, didn't they? Liberal today, uh, they call themselves liberal, but liberal means privatization and uh, the right wing. Uh, it's just the opposite of what liberalism used to mean. Uh, liberalism in the 19th century meant freedom from unearned income, freedom from land rent, from monopoly rent, and from privatization of banking. Uh, liberal meant that the government was supposed to take the lead, and that was what all of classical economics is all about. They wanted to tax away the land rent, uh, the economics of Henry George and all that, or they wanted to nationalize uh, the land and the monopolies. But today, uh, liberalism means abolish the government and turn all the power over to monopolies. Uh, instead of making money by profits, by employing labor to sell at a uh, markup, uh, the products. Uh, they don't really care about uh, industrial capital investment or employing labor or expanding production or expanding markets. Uh, it's simply an asset grab. Uh, let's just take over the assets and uh, get the people out of there. 
So would you say that regardless of what party has been in power in New Zealand over the last decade or so, it's been the same type of neoliberal policy? That's exactly correct. I see. Some commentators have pointed out that the three major outbreaks of North African unrest, Tunisia, Egypt, and Libya, which have toppled two dictators and are threatening a third, occurred in three countries singled out for praise by the IMF as success stories of free market restructuring, including large-scale privatization, scaling back of national economic and financial regulation, and massive job and social spending cuts. Do you agree that the revolts in North Africa are most fundamentally uprisings against the neoliberal free market pushed globally by the U.S. and allied financial powers? Well, certainly labor unions have taken a much stronger role, especially in uh, Tunisia, uh, than has been uh, talked about in most of the papers. Uh, The problem is that uh, these countries were educating a lot of people. Uh, Basically, this is a bourgeois revolution, uh, not a lower-class revolution. A lot of uh, people were educated, uh, sent to college, and then there's no work for them because the the economies have been neoliberalized and there's not much uh, work in neoliberalized economies. So needless to say, uh, there was a lot of uh, anger at the government, but it was also just uh, a reaction against the dictatorships that the Americans have uh, uh, been putting in power. The uh, IMF and the World Bank and the U.S. State Department praised these countries basically because they followed U.S. policies. And uh, the U.S. policies were let foreigners uh, take as much of your raw materials uh, as possible. And uh, dictators are pretty good at uh, controlling populations and keeping them quiet. So they did keep their populations quiet for decades. And I'm told in Tunisia, for instance, uh, that uh, families all sort of suffered quietly. Not really, they were afraid to talk to each other about how bad things were. And once uh, all of a sudden there was a spontaneous, uh, just sort of uprising against uh, uh, the dictator there, all of a sudden people began to talk to each other and they found out what the neighbors thought. Many of them didn't even know their neighbors' names before. And one uh, of our faculty members, uh, University of Missouri at Kansas City, said now uh, the neighbors even know uh, when each other's birthdays are. Suddenly it brought each other together, and they just decided that they were tired of being afraid. And that's how revolutions occur. People all of a sudden decide uh, they're tired of being afraid, and they thought, you know, what's the point of living in such abject poverty? Uh, If this or nothing, then we have nothing more to lose. We're as far down as we can be. We might as well fight back. And uh, they began to fight back, uh, and it just spread because there was just such a anger, latent anger throughout the country that what the American State Department, uh, Hillary and uh, uh, her right-wing gang, uh, thought was uh, the success of Mubarak in keeping people quiet, actually was uh, just uh, suppressing an enormous pressure that uh, simply exploded. I'm speaking with financial economist and historian Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, The View from Europe. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What impact would such increases have on the prices of other commodities, such as food? Won't such price increases likely cause even greater social unrest? What parts of the world are most likely to see these results? 
Even China could be destabilized by social unrest, could it not? I don't think so. I don't sense any uh, destabilization there at all. Uh, a lot of commodity funds are starting to invest in commodities. And uh, when you have a billion-dollar hedge funds coming in, they can bid up the price of commodities or drive them down. And the same kind of zigzagging pattern that you have in foreign currencies or stocks and bonds. So uh, I think once you have uh, political instability in oil or in raw materials, uh, you have an opportunity for hedge funds to come in and manipulate the financial price on uh, forward trading, on derivatives. And so it's much more financially driven than it is politically driven uh, at the present time. Well, right, with the speculation, of course. But oil prices and commodity prices are rising. Uh, they're rising partly because of an enormous amount of money going into Wall Street uh, hedge funds and raw materials investment funds, commodity funds, uh, that are driving it up. Normally, this is a new source of demand. Uh, the demand for raw materials is not by people to use them. Uh, and the demand for food is not by people to eat. It's a demand by uh, hedge funds and financial speculators to drive up the price and monopolize it. I see. So you see these price increases basically as a result of speculation. Uh, yes. Okay. Criminals like Angelo Mozillo of Countrywide Financial are going off scot-free. The Justice Department has dropped its investigation of Mozilla, saying his activities did not amount to criminal wrongdoing. All he did was pocket over $500 million between 2000 and 2008 off the issue of high-interest subprime loans to low-income borrowers and the sale of the securities to Wall Street banks, which sold them on as collateralized debt obligations. He also sold 10 million of his own stocks in Countrywide just before the company's collapse while telling other company shareholders that the company was healthy. The Justice Department says that this is not criminal. Isn't the word criminal being redefined here? Who is in charge, the financial sector or the government? Well, financial crime has been decriminalized, basically, uh, for two reasons. In order to uh, prosecute a crime, there not only has to be a crime, you need uh, prosecutors and you need investigators. Uh, under Bush and Obama, the uh, staffing of the Securities and Exchange Commission, the FBI, uh, and other criminal agencies has been cut so much that there are no lawyers, no investigators, to actually do the research to uh, prosecute. And essentially, the only person that's been arrested is Bernie Madoff, who walked into the police headquarters and said he uh, surrenders. Nobody else has been sent to jail. And my University of Missouri, Kansas City colleague, William Black, uh, has written very extensively on this, on the UMKC economics blog and on all of his uh, columns. He was the prosecutor uh, under the uh, uh, savings and loan uh, scandal in the 1980s. And it's just amazing. Uh, uh, you can read Naked Capitalism, for instance, uh, Eve Smith's site uh, for a listing of the crimes. You can read the UMKC blog. Uh, it's obvious uh, how much crime has occurred, but uh, nobody's going to be sent to jail. And even all of the settlements by the SEC uh, have been made without acknowledging any criminal wrongdoing, just to make sure that in civil trials, the victims are not able to recover 
from the fraudsters. Uh, the real aim of not prosecuting is not to let uh, any criminal prosecution be used in a civil case to make uh, people like Mazzillo pay back the money that they've got. If they can say, look, uh, we didn't do a crime, then it'll be much harder for a class action suit for uh, the victims of their crime uh, to make any uh, claim uh, because the government is simply not supporting them. That's a good point. If they're not prosecuted, then how can anyone go after them? That's right. Uh, and as uh, Balzac said, behind every great family fortune is a great crime, often unforgotten. And uh, economics should begin uh, with that. You'd think economic textbooks would have Economics 101. The first class would be on crime because that's what pays more than anything else. Uh, that's what pays even faster than finance. Uh, and yet uh, they don't talk about crime there. And it doesn't even occur in the national income accounts as... Uh, uh, as a service. Uh, of course, a service are things like your money or your life. Uh, they provide as much of a service as uh, finance, real estate, or health insurance. U.S. corporate profits are at record levels. They grew 27% in the fourth quarter of 2010, while sales have declined for the second year in a row. The discrepancy between profits and revenues is due, evidently, to the fact that the recovery is built on layoffs and speed-up. U.S. corporations have stockpiled huge sums of cash, $1.93 trillion in December, with which they are buying back their own stock to pump up stock prices and enrich the executives who hold the stock. They are not reinvesting profits in new productive activity or jobs. Please explain this corporate strategy. It seems as if the corporations are acting self-destructively. How can such a policy lead to long-term profitability? Uh, you're very confused when you read that. Uh, first of all, uh, you're pretending that uh, corporate profits are made by producing goods and services. Forty percent of the corporate profits uh, that you're talking about are made by the financial sector and another large portion by uh, real estate and uh, insurance. These are not sectors uh, that produce goods and services. They're not sectors that necessarily employ people. So the idea that you make profits by employing people is not a contradiction at all. Finance doesn't make its profits by employing people. It makes uh, what used to be called capital gains and uh, essentially makes uh, money by speculation. The fire sector is not part of the real economy. The fire sector, finance, insurance, and real estate, uh, is a form of economic overhead and is purely extractive. So uh, it doesn't make profits in the way that industrial companies uh, make a profit. And uh, whatever you were reading from uh, doesn't acknowledge the fact that there are two kinds of corporations, fire sector corporations, and industrial manufacturing corporations. Well, exactly. And it's the fire sector that's making all the money, right? That's right. So it's, a, it's a, an oxymoron, or it's a non sequitur, uh, to say that there's some contradiction between this and the form of layoffs. Uh, the financial sector makes its profits by creating uh, the kind of rip-off economy that causes the layoffs to be made. It's perfectly natural, perfectly explainable, uh, for anybody who has a more cynical view of how the world economy works. Despite claims of recovery and improving employment prospects, the situation for working people in the U.S. is really increasingly dire. The Obama administration is proposing cuts to the federal budget for social expenditures over the next 10 years 
while prices of gasoline and food are rising. Massive layoffs continue, foreclosures and bankruptcies keep increasing, and home values continue to fall. At the same time, the Fed is pursuing a policy of massive quantitative easing, which allows Wall Street speculation to carry on unchanged and drives the value of the dollar down. Will we be seeing scenes like those in Takrir Square across the U.S.? No. Uh, I don't think there will be a revolution here. People will just uh, suffer uh, more and more. It will be like England. and In England, uh, people just got poor decade after decade, and uh, they wouldn't invite friends over for dinner because they couldn't afford to serve meat, and uh, things just went down and down. Uh, and uh, as long as you can convince people that all this uh, poverty, uh, although it's needless, uh, is really part of economic nature, uh, they'll be satisfied. And although uh, all of the $600 billion in quantitative easing has gone abroad, uh, mainly to the BRIC countries, uh, it hasn't driven down the dollar because Europe and England are in just as bad straits. So you have all of the financial centers of the world, America, uh, Europe, and England, all uh, going down simultaneously. The illusion is that everything is stable. How do you explain the strength of the euro vis-a-vis -vis the dollar? It's not strong. It's going down now because uh, there was a slight uh, increase in the exchange rate because of the quantitative easing which uh, led to money going out uh, via England to other countries, but uh, uh, they're all going down together, basically. Long term, which currency do you think will devalue more, the euro or the dollar? There's no way of knowing. They're both so badly run uh, that it's a, it's a competitive self-destruction. So the quantitative easing and those dollars have all fled the BRIC countries for investment, huh? That's where they're trying to go. Michael Hudson, is there anything else you'd like to add? Just that the uh, economic textbooks uh, have a myth that uh, wealth is gained productively by uh, investing in capital goods and hiring labor. Obviously, uh, what we're talking about today, uh, neoliberalism and uh, financial wealth, isn't caused that way. It doesn't make profits by uh, employing labor. It uh, makes profits by uh, grabbing assets and uh, essentially privatizing uh, the public domain. Uh, if you're talking about making money by theft, uh, the biggest source of property and uh, uh, enterprise is still uh, the public sector. Roads, utilities, infrastructure, and uh, that's what the financial sector is grabbing now. Uh, we're in an asset grab phase, uh, and in the past you needed military armies to do this. Uh, today all you need is finance. And to close, how would you describe what the United States is going to look like in five years, let's say? Probably much poorer with a dismantled uh, state and local government uh, with uh, economic planning centered in the uh, uh, banks of Wall Street and uh, the large insurance companies uh, in the financial centers, not in Washington. Michael Hudson, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Bonnie. I've been speaking with Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show has been The View from Europe. Dr. Hudson is a financial economist and historian. He is president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trend. 
a Wall Street financial analyst and distinguished research professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. His 1972 book, Super Imperialism, The Economic Strategy of American Empire, is a critique of how the United States exploited foreign economies through the IMF and World Bank. He is also author of Trade, Development, and Foreign Debt, and Global Fracture, The New International Economic Order, among many others. Dr. Hudson has been a consultant to foreign governments, including Canada, Mexico, and Russia. Visit his website at www.michael-hudson.com. That's michael-hudson.com. Today's show was co-produced by Todd Fletcher. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. You did